paying homage to our heroes in headsets, talking about the evolution of secondary triage, and the current ET3 notice of funding opportunity. All in today's podcast, I'm Rob Lawrence, and this is EMS One Stop. Last week was National Public Safety Telecommunicators Week, and we had an opportunity to thank our heroes in headsets, those first first responders. In today's podcast, I will shortly narrate the article and then welcome my guest, Dr. Conrad Fibaz, who chairs the Council of Standards for Emergency Nurse Triage with the International Academy of Emergency Dispatch, the body responsible for clinical governance of the nurse triage protocols. He also fulfills the role of clinical director for Priority Solutions Incorporated, and he's also a member of the IAED CBRN committee. Conrad, welcome. Uh, thank you, Rob. So uh, as people will tell, this is a, an accented uh, podcast today. Uh, I, of course, am from the UK. Uh, so tell us about your background and where you're from, Conrad. So originally from South Africa and spent 10 years uh, working in the United Kingdom. And as you can tell, it did nothing to change my accent. <laughs> and the last seven years find myself here in uh, sunny Salt Lake City in Utah. So you really are part of the origin of nurse triage, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, and I'm looking forward to hearing that. That's on one of the list of my questions, and so we'll get into that, but first of all, we'll just take a second to listen to the narration of this week's article, which is uh, entitled, Stay on the Line, I'll Tell You What to Do Next. Last week was National Public Safety Telecommunicators Week, and it's always held on the second week of April, and is a chance to honour all our wonderful telecommunications personnel in the public safety community. Having been an EMS leader on both sides of the Atlantic, I've had the privilege of watching these cool professionals deliver their essential life-saving service for two decades, and I'm constantly in awe of them. If you want to understand the value of our heroes and headsets, just attend a cardiac arrest survivor event. I've presided over many such gatherings, and the one thing that strikes me every time is the lasting effect the voice on the end of the telephone has on the survivor and their family. You would think the biggest bond at these events is created between the crew and their survivor, but you would be wrong. The bystander that called 999 or 911 will always seek out the person they were speaking to in those few minutes when the bystander's world consisted solely of a body and a voice in their ear offering calm but firm instructions on what to do next. That voice provided the strength and direction that instructed and counted along as life was preserved for the arriving medics. When the crew ultimately gets to the scene, the emergency is already five to eight minutes old and two people have been the strongest link in the chain of survival and have enabled life to continue. Sometimes this essential aspect is overlooked, and there may well be no celebration of life at all if the call taker, dispatcher, controller didn't do their job effectively. National Public Safety Telecommunicators Week was initially set up in 1981 by the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office in California and is a time to celebrate and thank those who dedicate their lives to serving the public. 
It is a week that should be set aside so everyone can be made aware of the hard work and dedication. Hopefully our dispatchers are getting the recognition they deserve this week or last week, from proclamations at city halls to a hearty thank you from all those who surround them and depend on their service. We must also take a moment to reflect on our call takers that have been impacted by COVID-19 and sadly some of the names that have perished in the pandemic have been from our communication centres. As we celebrate National Public Safety Telecommunicators Week, we should also look to the future. As I've described, these amazing individuals are indeed our first, first responders, but in many places and from a legislative perspective, they are classified as mere office workers. That's right, the US Bureau of Labor Statistics Standard Occupation Classification System, SOX, categorizes public safety telecommunicators as office and administrative support occupations. In many states, public safety communicators have now been reclassified as first responders. California Assembly Bill 1945 was signed into law in 2020. Assembly member Rudy Salas noted that, for years, dispatchers have been misclassified under titles that do not reflect the importance of the life-saving work they perform every day. As wildfires ravage our state, the work of dispatchers coordinating our emergency response has never been more critical. On the federal level, several attempts have been made to do the same thing. Just this month, US Representative Norma Torres from California, herself a former 911 professional, and Brian Fitzpatrick, a former FBI supervisory special agent and federal prosecutor, as well as a considerable number of bipartisan co-sponsors, introduced House Resolution 2531 to the 117th Congress. The bill states to require the Inspector of the Office of Management and Budget to review and make certain revisions to the Standard Occupational Classification System and for the purposes and other purposes. And this will be known as the Supporting Accurate Views of Emergency Services Act or the 911 Saves Act. 2531 will initially be heard by the House Education and Labour Committee before hopefully going on to the House and Senate as a whole. In its recent press release, the National Emergency Number Association, or NINA, noted that this small but important change, which would cost the taxpayers nothing, would give an estimated 100,000 public safety telecommunicators located in every community across America the respect and support they deserve, while improving the government's data collection and analysis efforts. With that bill now introduced, it's a chance for everyone to contact their elected officials, to sign on as a co-sponsor, to show their support. But this week, and every week in fact, please take a moment to thank your communication centre staff for the service, their sacrifice and their life-saving efforts. They thoroughly deserve it. So, Conrad, thank you for listening to that. And so let's get into, uh, we, we last week we were celebrating our fantastic dispatchers, system status controllers, call takers. They have a number of names, but they have a, they conduct a fantastic role of being literally the point at which life-saving begins. Um, but what I want to talk about in this particular podcast is really the next stage in the evolution of that, and that's how we can use uh, what in the UK they used to call hear and treat, right? Instead of sending a sending a crew out to it, um, and you really were at the beginning of this over, I think, what fifteen plus years ago, and, and I'll talk about when we first met in a minute. But uh, start us off with the or your origins of of nurse triage and, and that sort of concept of hearing and treating. 
Thank you, Rob. Yes, so what a great initiative by Patricia Anderson way back in 1981 uh, to celebrate um, uh, our telecommunicators um, in all sectors of uh, public safety, the EMDs, the fire guys, the police guys, a great initiative that needs to be celebrated. So yeah, my, uh, my career started off um, doing my um, family medicine a residency in a busy uh, tertiary teaching hospitals emergency department in South Africa. And um, it didn't take long to figure out that not, not all of our visitors to the emergency department actually needed to be seen in an emergency department. We would typically have a full-time physician and a nurse standing at the door and redirecting patients to the outpatient clinic department for their low acuity illnesses and injuries. Um, I had the opportunity back in 1999 to travel to uh, Palo Alto in California to work with a group of physicians from Harvard and Stanford University and a few international physicians, nurses, dentists and um, pharmacists to put together about 200 odd protocols that was specifically designed for use by registered nurses to telephonically triage patients that calls in with uh, symptoms or injury related issues. Um, we were successful in bidding for the nationwide uh, nurse triage line in the United Kingdom back in 2000. In 2001, I had the good fortune to meet Dr. Clawson. And um, what was really interesting about Dr. Clawson, he started the process of a creation of meaningful change with his groundbreaking work in the world of EMD, fire and police medical dispatch or, or emergency dispatch. And I did my first EMD course shortly after then in 2001 and got a good understanding of how this would benefit the dispatchers um, at the point of first contact with the patient. In 1997, I had the opportunity to go into a call center um, and listen to some of these call handlers, call takers, medical dispatchers, um, just ad-libbing um, from the limited experience they had in dispatching uh, vehicles to um, emergencies, giving ad hoc advice with no guidance at all. And then in 2001, when I got to learn about these uh, protocols that was developed uh, by Dr. Clawson, I found it fascinating to think that now for the first time, there's proper guidance, research evidence-based guidance uh, for our dispatchers. But this also um, brought up the idea that, but what about those individuals that gets transferred to the hospital that's of a low acuity nature that could have been dealt with quite differently in a different uh, a resource setting that does not necessitate an ambulance going with lights and sirens or not to emergency department. 
And the rest, as they say, is history. And actually, 2000, I think it was about 2004, uh, Conrad, is the first time that uh, we encountered each other. So it's been a, been a long while. And uh, uh, my part in your plan was, of course, to show up, sign on the dotted line and purchase what was then called SIAM, Priority Solutions Integrated Access Management, uh, and uh, with with my lead nurse. And of course, we, we implemented that in the east of England. And uh, that's really sort of how I became a great fan of this this system. And obviously having the, the two systems set up in the control room where the 999 caller, as it was in the UK, would take the call, realize it's a low acuity, and then tell the patient, um, you know, please stay on the line. I'm going to transfer you across to the nurse. And then, of course, you know, that that worked out for us over there. So uh, it was really fun to be one of your early implementers, in fact. Robbie, indeed, you've got a good memory all the way back to December <laughs> 2003, actually. Right. There we go. Um, wow. And, um, yeah, my, my, uh, your colleague um, that uh, assisted us with that uh, process uh, under your guidance, um, we implemented two workstations in the East Anglia, as it was called those days. That's right. And um, subsequently, um, three agencies there merged and um, is now called East of England Ambulance Service, um, now have 59 workstations and more than 80 um, clinical advisors that works on the secondary triage desk exclusively taking calls that came via the 999 system has been classified as uh, low acuity. Well, let's, and, give, um, let's give a shout out to the folk in Helsden, Norwich, which was my old office. And of course, that's where it all started. So if, you, if you're listening, and we'll make sure they do. Uh, hello, folk in the East of England Ambulance Service. And thank you for being those the trailblazers that you clearly were. And they're doing an incredible job, considering that at peak times, they can do as many as between five and 700 calls, lower, lower acuity calls per day, which is a significant amount of volume um, that that's taking off a huge amount of stress off of the EMS system over there and in ensuring that more of their vehicles are available for those true emergencies. Now, I want to bring us across the Atlantic, Conrad, over, over to the US, where we both ended up, clearly. We, we both uh, jumped the pond. And when I arrived uh, in Richmond, it's going to be now 13 years ago, I think, of course, the system was operating there. And I was, and I have to tell you, I was excited to come into the control room to see not only the the uh, the, the ProQA priority dispatch system going on uh, with the, with the nine one one system, but also the nurse was there with the same same setup. But my excitement soon waned because, of course, at the time, remember, 13, 12, 13 years ago, had all the the technology, had all the people but didn't have the pathways. And so it became problematic in the end. And so what was a really good program kind of waned a little bit because I think it peaked before its time. So how have we now grown and evolved in the US to get to where we are today? Very good question, Rob. Um, and I can vividly remember your nurse. I can actually remember her name. Probably one of the best nurses that that ever was employed, was employed within uh, the system. She did a fantastic job. But what it pointed out, without that resource, the directory of services, as we call it, um, it's very difficult to find alternative uh, destinations other than the emergency department. Right. So uh, what evolved over the time is more and more agencies um, spending more time in building out their uh, resource system. So those alternative uh, resources 
other than the hospital. Uh, we have um, <clears throat> spent a great deal of time to integrate um, our low-code system with a directory of services. We also changed the system in a way that we had have now a tiered disposition. So typically our first level of disposition would indicate how soon a patient need to be seen at a resource and if they need to be seen face-to-face -face or remotely. And um, we subsequently built in a second tier resource management system, which allows the actual agency to list a specific set of resources that's available within their community and attach it to that first tier disposition. Sounds very complicated, but it's not. I'll give you an example. For example, um, let's say a nurse get to a disposition that a patient needs to be seen within four hours face-to-face. -face. The agency will then set up resources in their community where they believe the patient will be able to be seen within that four-hour time frame. The third tier will be your directory of services, and that will list uh, the bricks and mortars, the opening times, the services available at that resource in the community for that patient, and if they would cover the health insurance um, that the patient mentioned that they currently are using. Uh, so that, that kind of completes the full circle. And agencies that does not have many of these resources available, what the system will do, it will indicate the need for those resources and future planning to ensure that those resources are available in the community going forward so that individuals don't have to travel miles and miles to get to a resource or use uh, the 911 system as a primary care system of access. So it sounds like you're solving those things that frustrated me early on on arrival in the US, and I commend you for that. We sort of come right up to date, and uh, the, the pandemic did one thing for you know the, the hearing and treating element of this, and of course there's been a lot of waivers for telemedicine, uh, a lot of sort of solutions when people have been uh, stuck at home on lockdown, and of course, this this also applies to the way that EMS is evolving and changing now. And that we did we've done a lot of treatment in place. We have the ET three program that kicked off in earnest in uh, January. And of course, there's now a new element to the ET three program. There's been a NOFO, which is Notice of Funding Opportunity, to actually now help those organisations that are trialing and testing ET three to actually bring more of the nurse triage and the nurse call taking the secondary triage into their system so we're now about to go through the stargate into the next sort of level of the the, the atmosphere with this i think conrad uh, yes rob what a great initiative uh, from cms and cmmi um i mean we've known for many years that um that just you call we all we will respond to every call uh, regardless if it's an emergency or not and have uh, patients end up in very busy emergency departments with elongated waiting times for them. And also um, the knock-on effect of ambulances having to wait uh, up to six or eight hours outside busy emergency departments to offload 
these patients before they would be available again to go on true emergencies. So um, I think it's a great initiative. Uh, the NOFO will allow up to um, 40 agencies um, to get funding to put a medical triage line in place that could assist um, with redirecting uh, patients with low acuity problems, illnesses, Ill injuries to alternative destinations other than with an ambulance uh, to the hospital. Right. And of course, ET3 is, is, is creating a reimbursement model for not taking the patient to hospital for the particular, um, again, NOFO, become familiar with this, folks. It's going to be the, the buzzword for the next the next few months now in terms of uh, this, the notice of funding opportunity. Comrade, also, CMS have put $34 million into this, so it's a real statement of intent uh, as we go forward to, to fund this, and clearly it's going to you know cost a little bit to set it up, but uh, uh, that's an exciting thing as well. We have to keep in mind that that. You know, the first year is typically the most expensive year for an agency to set up a medical triage line. Uh, there's recruitment of new staff. There is a capital layout, uh, servers, um, uh, those type of items, uh, planning, implementation, um, starting up uh, policies to ensure that all of this is safe, uh, putting in place quality assurance and quality improvement measures. And the first year's funding after two-year funding opportunity will help a lot of agencies to get started with their medical triage line. That's excellent. And so if you are an ET3 organization out there, of course, you know all about this. You know what's on the to-do list for the next few weeks. Uh, this particular application form, by the way, is due on May the 11th. And so through my column and my podcast, I'm going to follow both ET3 and, of course, the, the creation of these, uh, you know, nurse the nurse triage programs within the program very closely, because, of course, this really is charting our future. And uh, and again, I, I, I can't hide my excitement about this because I think it's, uh, you know, the next stage in our evolution, as I say, through the Stargate onto the next level of, of our exploration. Um, so is there anything else we need to, to add, Conrad, that uh, that's of really use to anyone that's in part of the ET3 programme or those that are just watching along with us? Rob, I, I think what's important um, with the medical triage line is if we want to ensure that this is a successful many years uh, coming, um, looking back at uh, you know, 20 years worth of experience in, uh, you know, uh, implementing medical triage lines all over the world, number one would be patient safety. We must ensure that we are all doing this safe, um, that the protocols are well vetted, um, that there's research backing those up, that the training of the personnel that will be doing the triage is, is um, well thought out, um, also that quality assurance and quality improvement uh, makes up, um, you know, a big part of, of this initiative um, for those agencies that's going to select, uh, elect to, um, to run a medical triage line. And uh, for those agencies, as I said, the, uh, the NOFO is due on May the 11th. Uh, the award is going to be September the 10th. So there's a bit of a tense wait for that to come along, but uh, Comrade, thank you for, for joining me today. Uh, how can we get hold of you? How can we contact you? Uh, Rob, yeah, what a pleasure to join you on your podcast uh, today. Um, uh, easiest way is uh, probably just via email, uh, conrad.fivers 
MD at Priority Solutions Inc.com. And we'll put that in the show notes. So, Conrad, thank you. Uh, those out there, remember EMS One Stop and uh, Chris and Kelly's Inside EMS show is available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and Spotify. Some of those things I've never even heard of, but there you go. Uh, do us a favor, whatever platform you're listening on, just take a second to rate and review the shows as it boosts us up the searchability charts. Fantastic. Um, that's all for now. You can follow me on Twitter at UKRobL1. The one is very important. And also on LinkedIn. Or if you want someone to take your exercise for you, visit my hiking vlog channel on YouTube, UKRobL Hikes, because every weekend I'm up a hill somewhere. And uh, a lot of people like me to do their exercise for them these days in the days of lockdown. There you go. Would you like me to do a hike for you, Conrad? I'd love that. I mean, we've got some of the most beautiful hiking trails here in. Uh... Uh, the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. Right, I'll, I'll add that to my list. I'm currently knocking out all of the uh, Southern California peaks over 5,000 feet. So uh, anyway, there we go. That's been Conrad Fivaz. I've been Rob Lawrence. And until next time, bye for now. <laughs>